You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book, Auction Ready, How to Buy Property Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website, as well as download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. You know how we love to look at the wider world of investing beyond property, beyond even Australia. We enjoy discovering alternative investment methodologies and frameworks, but always with our filter of low risk and sustainability. Now we prefer investing over gambling and we draw a very clear distinction between the two. Today's guest is pretty pragmatic and we're confident that he will contribute meaningfully to our quest for lifelong learning. In this episode, we're honoured to be joined by Alan Kohler, one of Australia's most respected finance reporters. For decades, readers and viewers have enjoyed his expert opinion in the press, on television and more recently online via his website, The Constant Investor. And in case you aren't familiar with the name, he's currently the business editor-at-large at The Australian, finance presenter on ABC News, famous for your charts, presenter of the talking business channel on Qantas Inflight Radio, adjunct professor in the business faculty of Victoria University, and also, what's your role at um, Investmart? Well, so um, I did have a uh, business called The Constant Investor, which uh, I sold to oh. Investmart. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and uh, uh, it's now been merged with the original businesses business that I created called Eureka Report, uh-huh. which Investmart bought. So I'm now running Eureka Report for Invest Smart and having done a bit of a circle. All things come around again. There you go. Well, so I obviously read a slightly out of date bio originally. Okay. Alan's writing and interviews bring a context to the issues that matter to investors and he also has a particular gift with charts, as I've mentioned earlier, and we will include some links in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us today, Alan. Not at all. It's great to talk to you. Thank you, Alan. Um, I know you love your charts and um, what's some of the charts that you've been looking at recently that just blow your mind? Because we are in... You know, uncharted territories in on many okay. fronts. But, I mean, some things you just think, how the hell are we where we are? Okay, well, the chart that blows my mind at the moment is the amount of um, uh, bonds in the world that uh, have a negative yield. It's hard to get your mind around that. Mm. Let me firstly explain what a bond is. A bond is basically an IOU, a fixed interest security that um, you invest in. You get, you get your money back at the end of the time and they pay you interest over the period. And... You know, uh, most of them or a lot of them, they're either issued by governments or companies um, and uh, there are 17 trillion US dollars worth of bonds currently uh, that have a negative interest rate. Mm. Now, what does that mean? It means Ooh. if you bought it, if you bought one of the bonds mm. and you held it for the rest of the term, whatever that might be, whether it's five years or eight years or nine years, uh, um, what you got back at the end of the time plus the interest would be less than you paid. Mm. So you would lose money. 
you would get, be guaranteed to lose money. So $17 trillion worth of bonds, which is about mm. 45% of all the bonds that are trading in the world. Is it? Wow. About 45, mm. is it? Yeah, okay. um, are uh, negative yielding, which means that you're guaranteed to lose money. So what's going on? Yeah. Um, the answer is there is what you might call a bubble in bonds, mm. bond prices. Uh, when bond prices go up, the yields come down. Negative uh, yields uh, are one aspect of it. The other aspect is that um, yields in general of bonds are really low. Um, mm. The Australian uh, government's 10-year bond uh, currently pays an interest rate of 1%. Uh, yeah, one percent. So that means that you know, if you lock your money up for ten years, you get one percent interest. Which you get in the bank anyway. So why bother? Well, why bother? And the government bond is uh, is government guaranteed, obviously. So mm. it's it's really secure. But one percent, mm. yeah, mm. heavens above. Um, people have been calling the bond bubble over. You know, I remember back in advice, what was maybe two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve. Um, you know, we'd go to lots of investment sort of you know financial advice. Oh. You know, a lot of the talk was, oh, the bond bubble's over and, you know, it's not going to go lower. and Just kept going. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there have been people saying it can't keep going, you know, the, but the bonds kept coming down, you know, 3%, 2%, 1%. So I'm um, a bit of a novice at this, right? So I'm a property person and I'm trying to, you know, expand my mind. And my view, from my understanding, was that a bond was always um, low risk and therefore low return. So, you know, higher risk, high return, maybe, yeah. <laughs> um, low risk, low return. So that's low risk, but that's negative return. <laughs> that's sort of not acceptable. Why would people invest in them? Two reasons. One is that there are speculators who are ex- uh, uh, expecting the price to go even higher. Right. So it's past the parcel, you mm. know, looking for a, yep. a greater... Hot potato. F- <laughs> hot potato, mm. looking for a greater fool to buy it off you. It's like yeah, any bubble. Yeah. Mm. You know the the um, the dot com bubble of the late nineties yeah. and so on. Everyone were, um, was um, hoping, pay, paying heaps for uh, internet stocks, mm. expecting that somebody else mm. would pay more. So that's one reason. The other reason is that a lot of investors, pension funds, banks, and yeah. so on, are required to buy bonds. Right. So they have to. Mm. So there's two types of buyers of these things. One is speculators. The other is mandated buyers. Mm. And the speculators are the ones pushing the price up. Yeah. Mm. Look, I think the context, though, I mean, look, we're focusing on bonds and probably everyone's eyes are just glazing right <laughs> over. But but the thing is that interest rates, all interest rates are really low. Yeah. Mm. And that's just one kind of extreme aspect of what's going on. The, the uh, RBA cash rate, which we report on every month, the RBA mm. has a meeting on Tuesday, first Tuesday of every month. They decide what they're going to do with the overnight cash rate, which then flows through to everything else. Currently one percent, record low. Came down, came down in two jumps in June and July, from one and a half percent. Everyone reckons it'll come down again yeah. to at least three quarters of a percent, possibly half a percent. Um, so that's a part, another part of the mm. the low interest rate story. Another part of the low interest rate story is the European equivalent of the RBA, uh, European Central Bank. Its policy rate, their equivalent of the cash rate that the RBA moves. Is minus 0.4. Mm. Um, the Swiss one and the, the Swedish one, and all uh, and there's about half a dozen countries that have got their central bank policy rate at negative. Mm. Yeah. Means you've got to pay them mm. to keep your money. Yes, it's bizarre, isn't it? So, so, and then I've heard of stories of a, what, a bank in Denmark actually paying people to take a mortgage. So that's, that's just right. sort of the logical extension of this, isn't it? Mm. Exactly, yeah. that's right. So, interest rates. Let's just agree that interest rates are really low mm. historically. 
really low and you know that's um that's an interesting thing i mean because uh, what that means i mean you, you like talking about property but mm. yeah what that means is that um the property market's taking off again yeah as yeah. a result of those two rate cuts in uh june and july and you know if there are another couple of rate cuts mm. and the other thing that i mean the other thing to say about that is that the lower the starting point of the cash rate um the bigger the percentage reduction the proportion the bigger the proportion yeah, yeah. reduction in borrowing costs. Yeah, yeah. So the the cash rate cut from one and a half to one percent was a thirty three percent reduction. Yeah. Before the GFC, the mm. average uh, cash rate for a decade or two before the GFC was over six percent. Mm. And so every time the cash rate moved by a quarter of a percent, it was like a five percent change. Yeah. But now it's like thirty three percent. Huge change. Yeah. And what's actually happening now as well is is the bank servicing the way that how much the money they'll lend you is based on the interest rate. Um, the further rates go down, the more you can borrow. Um, you know, that's the way the APRA changed the rules. So not only are we getting lower rates, but now we can borrow more. And so you're kind of getting a double kick. People are going, you can borrow more money at cheaper rates, so they're just going to go and spend it. And I guess that's the worry is that when rates start to, to rise one day. But, you know, Japan have had low rates for 30 years almost. How is the world going to potentially get off this kind of sugar hit with low rates? I think we're going to have it for a long time. Um, I think there's a couple of reasons, there are a few reasons for what's going on um, that aren't going away in a hurry. One of them is technology and the fact that um, uh, technology is driving prices down, removing companies' ability to mm -hmm. raise their prices. Um, it's it's a, a commonly called zero marginal cost, that is to say the extra product if you, uh, Facebook's extra pages of Facebook mm. uh, cost nothing. Um, mm. Yeah. Uh, right. Extra extra power from a solar farm has a zero marginal mm. cost. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So all these products are now, because they're digital or, you know, um, uh, renewable energy are um, uh, zero cost. Uh, the the fundamental the cost of building the farm is there, but yeah. once you've built it, it's sunk. Yeah. And mm. so the cost of providing the electricity then becomes there. So what mm. we're finding is last week, for example, um, there were two days on which for six hours uh, power prices into the national mm. electricity market were negative. Wow. So companies were paying to put their, to their power to put their power in. So um, prices are being driven down mm. all over the place. And robotics and things like that are coming to it as well. You know, yes, a ro right. robot can go 24-7. You know, you only have to pay his wage once and then he so sits there and, That's right. And it's not just companies that are having <laughs> their pricing power removed. It's labour. Yeah. Workers can't get a wage rise, mm. um, partly because they're being replaced by robots or algorithms. And so uh, mm -hmm. that's a really important part of what's, what's going on. Does that worry you for... You know, people of younger generations, do you think that, or do you think that, you know, there's an argument, two arguments. One person says, oh, you know, we're going to lose 40% of jobs. And then the more optimistic half full person says, well, we'll replace that with more jobs. What's your jobs. thoughts on uh, kind of, you know, the future economy? Does it, does it worry you or do you think that we adapt as humans that we will? It worries me a lot, actually. It worries mm. me a real lot. I mean, mm. everyone, a lot of people say, the optimists say, yeah, yeah, it'll be fine. You know, we've had... Uh, technology revolutions before. Yep. Look at the industrial revolution. Mm. We all got through it. That's fine. Uh, I, we did get through. Obviously, life went on after the industrial revolution, but there was 
there was a long period of time in the 19th century where a lot of people were really poor. Mm. Mm. Um, they didn't have jobs. I mean, there was a lot of hardship caused yeah. by the Industrial Revolution, um, which we eventually got through. Um, so, look, I think it's possible that there will be a lot of hardship. I don't quite know how it's going to work out. Mm. I'm, I am worried about that. And do you, but, I mean, a lot of people think um, Australia is the lucky country because we have had, you know, 20-odd years without a recession and beautiful, it's great lifestyle. Are we really the lucky country or is it just that we're in this kind of bubble as well where we haven't had, you know, a severe traumatic event, I guess? That uh, phrase that was coined by Donald Horn in the book by that name was ironic, actually. Okay. <laughs> it wasn't. He didn't mean that we're lucky. That's he meant right. that we think we're lucky. It's yeah. words, which is correct still. Well, <laughs> That's the well, point, isn't it? Bernard Salt, I mean, he said the you know, avocado cut toast. I think that got taken out of context. So. Mm. <laughs> now, look, I suppose the, the luckiness is that we're a big country um, which means we've got a, there's a lot of resources in the ground. We, you mm. know, like mm. we're not like Japan or Thailand or something where yeah. we haven't got much. We've got tons of resources, and so it means that you know we we um, we can keep digging them up. <laughs> but the trouble is that these days, especially these days, those resources industries aren't creating a lot of jobs. You know, all of the yeah. mines, all the iron ore mines that are sort of supporting the country and paying all the taxes that are supporting the budget and taking the budget into the surplus, that's all fine. Uh, but there's no people in them anymore. Yeah. Mm. They're all robots. Mm. The, the trucks are being driven from Perth mm. by somebody in a screen, uh, you know, wow. sitting in front really? of the screen. Yeah. All the trucks in the mines in Perth, in yeah. Pilbara, automated, are driven from Perth. Yeah. Self-driving. Yeah. Isn't, isn't that wild? It? That yeah. is so wild. Yeah. <laughs> well, I actually the, trains, heard of, um... the trains, the trucks, the whole mines are being run from Perth. Mm. Yeah. So all that, that you know, this, <laughs> the cubs, mm. <laughs> the, the, the fly and fly outs and all that basically, you know, all That's that all disposable income, which is one of the reasons obviously Perth's property market suffering on That's an ongoing. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's That's just... right, because there's no jobs. I mean, the last mm. time there was a, the last resources boom, Perth property market took off. Mm. Um, now the, the Perth property market is has been languishing for ages and the lack of jobs in the mining industry is not allowing it to turn around. Even though the iron ore price has been high, mm. the mining industry is going fine. Mm. Yeah. Um, but the, the Perth property market is not. So it is a question of whether Perth's a good place to buy property. Mm. I, I'm, you know, yes, it's low. The prices are cheap. Yes. Doesn't mean it's going to go up. Doesn't mean it's going to go up. It goes to that affordability <laughs> argument, doesn't yeah. it, that people who can't afford to buy, say, investment in Sydney or Melbourne say, oh, I'm going to buy in Perth because it's affordable. It's like, yes, there's a good reason for that. And why are you investing in the first place? You actually want to return and it could be back into negative returns, back into... Uh... <laughs> you said construction there, though. Um What's, you know, because obviously the mining industry is having a bit of a, you know, a struggle. The construction industry, though, has had it pretty good. How do you see that playing out? Because, you know, it's not looking as positive in the years to come. Well, the construction industry uh, has had, as you say, it's had a good time. Um, uh, it's weakened this year. It's coming off now. There's been a, you know, there's kind of enough apartments for the time being. <laughs> um, <laughs> the construction industry basically has been a function of the population growth. In 2006, our, pop, our immigration levels uh, doubled. Uh, John Howard basically mm. doubled immigration, uh, and that's been that's persisted ever since. So, you know, we're now bringing in a couple hundred thousand people a year instead of a hundred or less than a hundred, and so uh, they have to be accommodated. Mm. And the problem is that you know, and they have been accommodated. You know, like there's been a huge boom in 
construction of apartments in particular in Melbourne yeah. and Sydney. Mm. And Brisbane. Huge and, mm. and Brisbane, a huge boom, mm. massive. Um, problem is that um, it's it's not as easy to build roads because the mm. um, the governments pay for that. Mm. The private sector has been building the apartments and they've been cleaning up. Government has to build the roads, haven't yeah. been doing it. Yeah. And so the roads are all full mm. and we yeah. can't get around. Mm. It's terrible. So that and that's contributing to a low productivity. Mm. Um, I love how it's all interlinked. It's just so it's <laughs> mind-blowing, yeah. It is. It, mm. it is very But, I mean, the, there's so much money in the construction industry, but you're right, if we can't keep the people around, then the people get a bit annoyed because there's congestion and they've got to build the roads. But now it's a bit too late because we've already got the people here. Yeah, but then, and then it becomes an election issue, the population growth, and then the pressure's on the government to actually reduce the population growth, and then, then that's got a knock-on effect too, right? Yeah, so we have enough apartments, more or less. I mean, in the wrong they, have, they, have to keep, they have to keep building the apartments. Because the because the, the immigration is going to continue, um, so I don't think the construction uh, industry is going to go through some sort of uh, big bust. Mm. Although there are issues there, I mean, obviously there's been you know slowdown of approvals. There's been the the confidence amongst the buying population in terms of buying apartments, you know, because of all the well publicised failure of individual buildings. Um, but also the the settlement risk, you know, a term that probably didn't exist a couple of years ago. Um, so, and there's now more or better publicised that that apartments are well. It's certainly in Melbourne and Brisbane and probably heading to Sydney more likely to lose money over a ten year period than gain money in terms of value. So there's a lot of issues there that can, if people respond as you would think a sensible person might respond, is going to take away demand for new apartments despite the fact that, that people need houses. I think that the, um, uh, the, the, the construction problems, you know, the things that have been published, uh, publicised about cracks and all that stuff, the bad mm. building, mm. Um, the bad building practices, I think has been really damaging for the industry. Yeah. Mm. And so it has turned people off uh, buying apartments uh, quite rightly and sensibly. I mean... I don't think you should buy off the plan. I think it's a yep. bad idea. Oh. Yep. Um, we agree. You know, uh, buying off the plan means you, you're buying, you, you're paying someone's cost plus margin. You're not, you're not paying oh. mar- market price. Yeah. Mm. You should pay market price, mm. not mm. cost plus. No, no, it's nuts, isn't it? Well, and so, <laughs> so that's. Uh, I think there's been, there's a bit of dialing back of, of buying off the plan, mm. rightly so. Um, so I, you know, as to how how it goes from here, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think, and that leads to settlement risk. When we talk about settlement mm. risk, that we're talking about people who commit to buying off the plan, pay yep. a deposit, and then don't cough up the um, the settlement price. Well, because, or oh, the valuations coming lower mm. as well, you know, because they're actually worth less than what they were, you know, the price that they agreed. Well, especially if they're falling down. Mm, yeah, yeah, there's a bit of a problem there. <laughs> <laughs> Although, weirdly enough, they haven't fallen down before settling. None of these buildings. So yes, the, the, right. the people Soon carrying after. the can effectively are the individual buyers, you know. The, mm. the Great Australian Dream, you've seen it, you know, been around for a few years. Um, you've seen it changed over the years as well. Where do you see that the Great Australian Dream going for, you know, younger generations? I saw a chart this week of um, of finance approvals, housing finance approvals, and um, uh, the first home buyer line was the highest it's been mm-hmm. For a very mm. long time, yeah, yeah, it was actually just about touching the investor line. Really, because that doesn't often happen, does it? No. So the mm. investor investment 
uh, finance is well down. Mm. Um, it's up a bit, went up a bit in the latest months. But mm-hmm. um, so first home buyers are back in the market. Mm. Um, you know, I think that the dream of owning a house is is uh, real. I mean, people are still in it. Uh, first home buyers are are in there now because houses are more more affordable. And you mean houses as in housing, as in? Or I you, mean dwellings, you, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, mm, yeah. I guess. I mean, mm. uh, it's true that there's a lot more apartments now. Mm. People are living in apartments more yeah. than they than they used to, mainly because you have to, mm. I guess. And do you see a lot of what's you know a lot of probably has had a great run for say twenty thirty years, but do you see that you know cause a lot of people believe you know property doubles every seven or ten years, or they you know they can just buy a property and it you know it all goes up. What's your view on kind of? the growth of property and what we've seen over the last 30 years and, you know, where things will go in the future. Well, we've learned over the last two years that property doesn't always go up. It comes down, right? So <laughs> um, last couple of years property prices have come down by 10% or so. Mm. Um, and that's kind of par for the course. You know, there's every decade or so there's a correction of 10% or so mm. in the market and, you know, that's what you have to expect. Uh, the best time to buy is at the end of a 10% correction. Mm. Um, you know, uh, we haven't had in Australia, in my memory, a 30% correction of the sort that America had in 2007-8 mm-hmm. when American house prices fell by 30 to 35% yeah. across the country. Um, and lots of other countries as well, Ireland, Spain, England. That's right. So, you know, we haven't had that. Um, a lot of people were looking at the, you know, the, the start of the downturn in Australia uh, 2016 <coughs> and 17, and said, "Oh, we're going to have that here. You know, mm. debt's so high, we're definitely going to have a big crash." And a few kind of well-publicised predictions occurred yeah. of 30 to 40 percent. Yeah, Martin uh, North, Shane Oliver. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so they didn't happen, uh, or at least they haven't happened yet. The market seems to have bottomed, uh, seems to have started rising again, and it's certainly been the case that uh, the regulators, both APRA and the Reserve Bank, are intent on making the, the housing market go up. Why do you think that is? Yeah. Because I, I obviously I completely agree that, you know, property is too big to fail, but why do you think that everyone is so invested in propping up the housing market? But not just that going up is different to yes, propping up, you know what I mean? Because, you know, we had this sort of the prudential measures that, that, that ended the boom, the bubble supposedly, which needed to happen. I think the pendulum was far too much in one direction. But why does it seem to be going again in that same direction? Well, because they're frightened of having a recession. I think that they have... Uh, decided to abolish recessions. <laughs> um, well, you don't want to be on your watch, though, do you? You don't want to be the, the first prime minister in twenty odd years to policy. be the one that caused the recession. No, but it is it is worth noting that the the last recession was caused by the Reserve Bank. It mm. actually was deliberate. Yeah, okay. yeah, the recession we had to have. It was it was indeed the recession we had to have. Paul Keating did it. Mm. Uh, they put up interest rates in eighty nine in order to. Okay. Basically, in order to have a recession, it's actually the recession, brave, wasn't it? I mean, it the was, recession before that in the early eighties was also caused by the Reserve Bank. Mm. I mean, central banks in the past have always caused recessions, so now they're but now they're it. doing anything mm. to avoid it, and they were frightened that if the property market kept falling, there'd be a recession. Mm. So they had to stop the fall. Right. Uh, the other reason I think that they're they're operating on the property market is because nothing else is responding. I mean, mm. they've. They've mm. cut. They've been cutting interest rates for eight years. They've cut interest rates fourteen times in a row. Wow! Mm. Yeah. Um, you know they've yeah. come down from um, four, uh, four and three quarters to one percent. I mean, mm. like nothing's mm. happening. The economy is still weakening. Yeah. You know, in terms of consumer spending, 
uh, wage growth, employment, unemployment's 5.2, it's not that terrible, but it's not coming down. Uh, they, so they can't get anything else to move. So they're trying to get the, um, they're trying to make the economy start up again using the property market because mm. that's the only thing they can actually have an impact on. Well, they're trying to do a lot of infrastructure as well, but, you know, there's only so much they can do, right? You know, they're trying to do roads and Well, yeah, but the infrastructure is just catching up to yeah. the population growth, as we talked about mm. before. I mean, it's not uh, going to create more productivity too much. No. I mean, yeah, it's creating a bit of The road's busy on day one. <laughs> but it is true. I mean, if you look at the uh, June, uh, so the, the most recent um, uh, GDP numbers, national accounts came out last week for the June quarter. The, the June quarter uh, GDP increase was half a percent. Right. Uh, the contribution to that from government spending was half a percent. Right. So uh, it was really, to a large extent, about government mm. spending. So the, the, you know, the, the output that's measured by GDP is all about government spending on, on that infrastructure stuff, but it really, in my view, is just a catch-up. But there's no leverage from that. It's like you get what you give by the sounds of it. There's no, like you say... It... Well, there's a limit. You can't keep... I can't do 5% of GDP of spending because, you know, they haven't got that money or they haven't got the, you know, the ability to do that, so... But it's not returning greater than the input. No, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, when it stops, it stops. That's it, mm. you know. And so government spending comes and goes... Mm. Um, you know, I mean, they're going to have to. They're going to have to keep building railways and keep yeah. building mm. roads, uh, as they have been doing. So the government spending will will be maintained, mm. of course. Mm. Um, so what's the next sugar hit? So rates, yeah, go from one down to half a percent. Because we don't know what the lower band is. It could be half percent. It could be zero. We just don't know. But let's say it goes to the lowest as possible. At some point, though, you know, the banks aren't going to pass it on anyway. So it's going to run out of steam. You cynic, you. Well, well, surprisingly, they passed on a lot more in the last two cuts than everyone thought they would, you know. Um, From a broking point of view, we were thinking maybe 20 basis points of the 50, but they did almost 30, 35, 40. So there was actually much more. And um, But, I mean, at some point they can't do it anymore. What do you think the next sugar hits? Because no one wanted to have that recession. So what do you think the next thing they'll do? I think we're off sugar for a while. Yeah. Sugar hits are over. There's no. I mean, it's basically what we've got for a long time. I think we, we're in for a long period of time of low growth, low inflation, low growth, low interest rates. We're going to have to get used to low growth. So the definition of a recession is? Two quarters of negative right. growth, that is to say contraction. Uh, I don't think we're going to have that either. I don't think we're in for a recession. I don't think we're in for a boom. So the elephant in the room is 100% for you. The reason that Chris and I do this podcast is because we passionately believe that property buyers can do it better. We really want to help all of you understand all the risks, but also the ways in which you can avoid your elephant making the decisions. But what we would love for you to do is just to share this episode and share other episodes with people around you that are going through the property process. Give us a review on iTunes. A five-star, please, would be very appreciated because this is about making sure that we all benefit from the wonderful information that our guests have been sharing with us. You're saying that around um, low growth, but are we already in a recession technically if we weren't importing people? Because from a GDP per capita basis, we are. Do you think that that's, you know, the only way that we're going to keep the economy growing is we keep importing kind of people, we keep 
you know, selling university, we keep getting tourism on the back of that, importing people. Do you think that's really the only option for the government right now is to keep upping immigration? That's been the case for a while, that the only growth, the only GDP growth has been coming from uh, population growth. Mm. The, the, the GDP growth for the latest 12 months was 1.4%. Mm-hmm. Population growth was 1.6%. Mm. So uh, per capita GDP is kind of either flat or slightly negative. Mm-hmm. Um, now people talk about a per capita recession, but the thing is that, you know, we, we, the way we define a recession is two quarters of actual mm. overall real GDP going down. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So there won't be a recession. Uh, it'll, but it'll probably feel like one mm. to a lot of people. And so for younger generations, because, you know, it's, a lot of people haven't seen, they, they only know what they know, right? So they only know what they've gone through. So a lot of people in their 20s um, probably don't remember the GFC. I was in London when the GFC happened. So I've got a bit of an experience of witnessing what happens when a recession hits and businesses shut down and unemployment and, you know, and the whole psychology of that. What would be some of the advice you would give, though, to younger generations? If we're going to this low-growth world, what are some of the things they should be doing to prepare themselves for this new world? Um, well, I mean, it's all about jobs. I mean, in a recession, if you keep your job, you're fine. Mm. Kind of that's what it's about, really, mm-hmm. um, because generally what happens in a recession is, as you say, businesses close, prices come down. Um, you know, uh, unemployment goes up. Uh, last recession in Australia, unemployment got to 11%, mm. you know, which is kind of double what it is now. Um, uh, if, as long as you keep your job, you're okay. Mm. So the answer is keep your job. That's mm. the main thing to do in a recession. Obviously, it's not always possible. You have to get laid off. But, I mean, I think that's a, a lot of uh, millennials probably believe that they'll always have a job. Because they've just, you know, because they've come out of uni, they've got a job and things like that. And, you know, I don't think a lot of people really ever consider that they will lose their job. I thought millennials were more pessimistic than that. Well, I, you know, maybe, they, maybe they're pessimistic but they think they'll keep their job. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Or don't they reinvent? I mean, isn't that the sort of the thing about the future of work, that it's about reinventing what the jobs look like? And I don't think anyone reinvents unless you're forced to reinvent, you know, until you've actually lost your job and then you're like, oh, God, I actually didn't think that would happen and then... Now I've got to go get a new job. You know, it's very, I think people are very, it takes them a while for them to actually sink in that they should be doing things for their future, I guess. Well, you should certainly be thinking about the job you're in and to try to ensure that it's a job that's relatively defensible mm. um, and is not just going to disappear. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or that you make a positive contribution to your employer so that the employment doesn't disappear as well. I mean, you know. Precisely. Mm, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I think that's the number one thing. I mean, it, uh, most people, obviously everyone's saving superannuation, doing superannuation, 9.5% of salary going into a fund. Mm. Uh, for most people, young people, 20s and 30s and 40s, um, you're not really in control of that. The money's just invest, invested by the fund mm. and you're going to hope that that works out okay. Mm. Um, uh, if you can afford it, you've got a bit of spare cash and you can um, negatively gear a property, then fine, go do that. Mm. And now's a good time to... Although with low interest rates, that's not going to be so lucrative, is it? As in in terms of the... Well, it's not that... You'll never buy for tax reasons, let's face it. But, but you know, your actual um, deductions sure, aren't going right. to be there in the way but they the, But the, the deductions, as you say, it's not about the tax, it's really mm. about the capital gain. But um, and now's a good time to do that. If somebody mm. can afford to 
mm. <clears throat> can afford to fund the loss, um, which you have to do. Yeah. Even mm. if you get a tax deduction. Exactly fund right. It. Yeah. Um, if, if you can afford to fund the loss, then probably uh, that's good. That's a good idea mm. to supplement your super. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So a lot of older generation right now are uh, a little bit upset because cash rates are so low. Um, but then they think, well, what else do I do with it? I don't want to put it into shares because, you know, the share market's expensive. Uh, and then they worry about bonds because bonds are all very highly priced. How do you think a lot of, you know, what sort of things that should they be thinking about in terms of, um, you know, how to actually, how do they actually play it? Because they've just got this money sitting in the bank and they're like, what do I do with things? It's just there's not many, many options for well, them. That's the thing about modern monetary policy, the Reserve Bank strategy is all about oppressing those who rely on savings um, and benefiting those who borrow. It's about transferring wealth from savers to borrowers. That's mm. kind of what they're trying to do, and the savers are in strife, no doubt about it. You know, you're getting, you're getting oppressed. Um, uh, I, I think what the RBA is trying to do is, make, is to force you to, um, to buy shares, really. Mm. Um, and the, the average uh, dividend yield on the stock market is about 4.5%. So you are getting, you know, and there are quite a good, lot of good companies. You know, you can buy banks, transurban, uh, good solid companies that'll mm. pay dividends. The share prices might fall ten or twenty percent mm. over the next twelve months for some reason. You know, there's corrections in the share market happen all the time, mm. but your income is reasonably secure. Mm. So I do think um, people who rely on, you know, income for their, uh, for, you know, from their capital from their savings, mm-hmm. should look at the share market. They, you know, they shouldn't sit there in the bank getting 1.5%. That's really mm. trying to nowhere. I think the challenge with that, I think, is they go and do that, but, you know, that's reliant on the company still paying out the income, right? And so, um, and then that's kind of unproductive for our country a lot of the time because, you know, instead of the company keeping the profits and reinvesting and creating more production and, you know, et cetera, what the company's incentivized to do is just to keep on paying income because that's what's holding its share price up. So I feel like we're... We're, we're screwing over the savers so they go and buy the shares, but the share, the share um, investors just want income. And so then we're screwing over our economy. It's, it, do you think that's kind of makes sense or is it? Look, the average payout ratio of profits is around about 70%. It's, mm. it's higher in Australia than elsewhere in the world, that's mm. true. Companies are disgorging more of their profits to shareholders, but it's not like it's not terrible. It's, mm. it's okay. Mm. And anyway... Um, people who are relying on income to, you know, on their savings, um, shouldn't really worry too much about the economy. Yeah. I mean, you know, you just, you just need to, you yeah. just need to make some money to live on. Yeah, no. So, so yeah, I mean, a lot of the older generation shouldn't be caring because I mean, they they're still they're retired, right? And they just want the income. Yeah, so for them, about. it's a question of do you go for a, a money in the bank or do you buy some shares? I say, you know, yes, okay, use the money in the bank to some extent, but really, you need to get your income up mm. um, and uh, uh, buy shares. You know, mm. like uh, BHP is an income stock now. Mm. I mean, it's it's fine. Yeah. Good company. It's funny you say that around the older generation not needing to care about the economy. I kind of feel like that um, every election time that comes around, though, because, you know, a lot of older generations are growing part of our election base and um, what they are kind of, they're not really too concerned about the economy sometimes because... You know, they just want to get their income. They've retired, um, but they're a huge part of our voting base. How do you think that you know that problem is going to continue to play out over the longer term? Well, I think that probably means that 
dividend franking is not going to get abolished anytime <laughs> Funny soon. Funny that, yeah. Um, you know, well, the, Labor Party, the Labor Party had a crack at that mm. and uh, failed. The trouble with having, you know, having um, a whole lot of policies, as the Labor Party did, they had, you know, policies as long as your arm, you don't know which one was the one that lost in the election. Mm. You know, maybe it was all of them sort of lumped Combined. together. It was yeah. too many. But the trouble is... Well, you got that compared to a three-word slogan. You know, I want to dumb it down and I want to choose the easy way. <laughs> the three-word slogan is surprisingly compelling. Exactly. And so the Labor Party stuffed it up. Um, but I think it means that, you know, dividend franking is going to stick around for a while. The thing is with that, though, whether you agree with it or disagree with it, is that it's not just the oldies who are living off it. It's the fact that they also spoke to their kids and they were influenced as well. So I've anecdotally spoken to a lot of people whose parents have been benefiting from that for years and they voted accordingly. So even though it's not them particularly, so it's not just, you know, the growing older population, it's also the kids of that older population and feeling that their parents have been hard done by. Well, also the kids know that they're going to have to cough up to yeah, help their parents. Exactly probably. right. Mm. So everyone's you know, fighting with a hip pocket. So the parents are down. <laughs> the parents are down by twenty thousand a year. Mm. That's hard. You know, the mm. kids yeah. might have to. Kids might have to cough up. Might have to build a granny mm. flat. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I don't want to do that. That's right. <laughs> and so the um, the property market kind of there's a bit of a high clearance rates at the moment, and you know a lot of hype at the markets kind of coming back. What's your thoughts on kind of where things are kind of coming in the next? Obviously, there's a very low stock. What do you think? Are we actually out of the out of the kind of the downturn or do you think that there's things that people aren't thinking about that could happen like a global recession, all sorts of things? Oh, well, if there's a global recession, all bets are off, but mm-hmm. uh, I don't think there will be one. Mm. Uh, I think the property market has bottomed. Um, uh, will there be another boom? Well, uh, I, I, w- I, wasn't, I wasn't thinking that, but, you know, look, it's, it's looking pretty hot at the moment. Mm. It, it is true that over the, as the spring develops, a lot more stock will come onto the market and it will be tested to a much greater extent than yep. it has been. Mm. Um, and, you know, will that stock get soaked up? I don't know. I mean, I, I think probably the, the thing will moderate. I, I'd say the market will moderate to some extent. You won't yeah. You won't see. I mean, the, the rises in Melbourne and Sydney in August were 1.6 and 1.4% mm. uh, for That's the month. That's high. huge. Mm. I mean, multiply that by 12. And, yeah. yeah, exactly. Mm. Really. So I don't think that's going to continue at all. I think probably come back to half percent, but that's fine. That would, I mean, I think it's probably a reflection of how it went a little bit below, what it, you know, sort of went too far, and then it's slight correction. I can't see it continue at that le- at that level at all either. Well, because individual, you know, anecdotally as well, I'm dealing with buyers all the time, and they pulled out of the market because they felt it was overheated. So they they might be re-entering it now because they feel like they got an opportunity. They'll pull out again if they feel it's overheated again. Yeah, a lot of first-time buyers are entering, and that's the, as you can see on your stats, that, you know, a lot of first-time buyers are entering. There's so much mm. pent-up demand or first-time buyers that bought apartments because they were forced to because they couldn't afford a house and now the kids are a bit older or they've got more cash and now they're wanting to buy houses. So I think there is so much pent-up demand. That's what's entering the market now There's with very low stock. There's also so much stock, exactly, that appeals mm. or applies to a first-time buyer. So, yeah, it's mm. going to be interesting how that, you know, the fuel underneath the pot, so to speak. Yeah, but what what might change matters is if uh, the interest rates are cut again from one mm. percent to half percent. Now, uh, how much of that gets passed on? Well, some will. Mm. Um, I mean that that cut in the cash rate is a fifty fifty percent reduction yeah. in in uh, borrowing costs from one to half percent. Nominal, isn't it? The um, 
I think the average mortgage, variable mortgage rate is around about 3.1% now. Yeah. Uh, there's quite a few lenders who are uh, lending with a 2 in front of it, 2.9%, mm-hmm. 2.85%. Um, uh, so will that come down by half percent, possibly mm-hmm. by th- a third? So that's you said 3%, 3% comes down by 30 basis points. Mm-hmm. That's a 10% reduction in borrowing costs. That'll spur things on. Mm-hmm. I think what's happening now is that... Uh, you know, in 2014, 15, the investor costs went up a lot more because they were all the same rate and then investors went up. Homeowners didn't go up that much. Mm-hmm. And then the interest-only cap basically forced the banks to lift interest-only rates a lot higher as well. So those double things really hit the investors and that's what they targeted. But what we're seeing now in the last two or three months is that the investor rates are really starting to drop a lot faster than the homeowner rates. Um, and so, you know, because they're trying to get investors mm-hmm. into the market. Yeah. And so... What we're actually seeing, even though the RBA rate's only cutting half a basis, uh, you know, 50 basis points, the investor rate's fallen a lot more than that. You know, it might have even fallen 70 or 80 basis points. So we're starting to get, like, investment interest-only rates around 3.5% for five years. And so at some point, investors are going to be like, this is a risk-free bet um, almost because I can get a 3%, 4% yield um, and I can go interest-only for five years. So I think that's when you'll start to really see the market because then you get the whole boom, like, scenario where you've got investors and um you know home buyers competing um and i guess in, you know no worry about negative gearing going for the short term yeah well so you're talking the market up that, yeah. That, I mean, yeah, that, so that could be a bit of a spike next year yeah i i think there's you know not all across all properties right so not um things that are traditionally bought by investors like apartments and high rises etc i think investors are now finally switched on they've read the afr or the australian enough um, to realise that they shouldn't buy apartments. And that's where investors have generally gone. So they'll buy old apartments, but that's what the home buyers want. Um, or they'll buy houses and that's what home buyers want. So those type of properties, yes, but the new stuff, um, not so much. Cause maybe I, there'll be a two-tier market. Old, well, old been for a long time. Yeah, right. Mm, but mm. maybe more exacerbated. But what can we wind back to why did the, the central, or why was there need for APRA to slow things down back then? Because they got a bit too hot. Yeah. They were worried about the market getting overheated and um, and crashing. And so now we're back almost where we well, started. What they did, no, but know? what they did then mm. was they stopped, they prevented a crash. Mm. Yeah. And I think that was tremendously successful. I mean, it was it was it was, fan, it was oh, magnificent policy. Absolutely really. worked. worked it was great. Mm. I mean, the way they the way they tuned the market. Did. You know, they really it was it's one of the best applications of policy I've ever seen. Mm. Mm. Uh, the way they did that, and I think, <laughs> and you've really got to hand it to APRA, mm. um, because at the time the Reserve Bank was just sitting there on its hands with you know interest yep. rates yep. at one and a half percent for basically for about three years, mm. Mm. Um, and so they were doing nothing, and they weren't putting our rates up. They couldn't really. Mm. They they were scared of causing a recession. So what APRA did was they just tuned the market. Mm. And they wound back the interest-only lending to mm-hmm. investors and all that stuff, and yep. it was just magnificent. I thought. Mm. Um, and then they've now they've just tuned it back <laughs> the other way. It's I've never seen. I've never really seen. No, I've been, I've been hanging around this, uh. this this area for forty years, and I tell you what, I've never seen it so finely tuned. Well, they went for the right things because they didn't want to increase interest rates on homeowners because homeowners are struggling. We don't want to increase rates, but. There's too much heat in the market, mainly investors, because investors were yeah. more than home buyers in the market. So they yeah, just they went for the investors, and, uh, they, and they and that's right, they targeted it was yeah. in yeah. a way. And so, <laughs> and they talked about macro prudential and all that stuff as being the, the catchphrase. Mm. 
But it wasn't that macro, really. It was micro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they hit the investors with three things. They hit them, you know, one, interest-only rates up. Two, it's very hard to get interest-only. Mm. Then they increased their investment rates and that yeah. smashed their, their servicing. And then finally they went into the bank's policy and said, right, way you were lending money to investors isn't really fair. They can borrow 10 times salary where a home buyer can only borrow six. Mm. So now, you know, under this new calculator you've got to use, and they made all the banks use it, you can only borrow six times salary. So anyone who's, who's going to invest can't borrow anywhere near as much. And so they did so, so well. But then you get to the election. Now they're wanting it back, though. So so of those measures, what is going to be retained? Well, they they also said to the banks, you've got to have a user minimum servicing of 7% on your mortgages. So even though rates were you know, 3 4%, they said you need a buffer. Yeah. They've now just said it can be 5.5%, which is much lower than the 7%. But that's because the 2% on top of. Yeah, 2.5% yeah. on top of mm. 3%, let's say. Um, you know, I don't think they can go any further now, so they mm. probably have used that sugar. They don't um, need to go any further. Yeah, no. <laughs> that's working. right. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, um, but the point I'm trying to make or the question I have, do does anyone have an answer, is that are they going to just relax all the restrictions that were placed on investors? Are they relaxing everything? In which no. case it's just going to happen again. I think APRA's now got this great sense of power. Mm. They, they, I think they feel God. strong. You know, they're just, <laughs> uh, they're not going to stop that. They'll, they'll keep, they'll Playing. keep their hands on the levers. I yeah, mean. yeah, yeah, it's right. So it's, therefore, you can't really. So they know what they know what to do now. I think that they've, they've, this last twelve, two, one or two years has been tremendously mm. uh, significant learning experience for APRA, mm. and I think they've kind of learned a lot. So for investors' point of view then, so should we be looking for opportunities where Apple's ease things a bit, quick jump in, get your interest free, mm. your interest free, whatever you want to lock in, and then and then and then just watch for and then just dive out again, or they should do the opposite. They should actually, if they're being smart in terms of timing, they should wait until APRA does the uh, does the um the tightening up of the, the screws again, and then they get in and buy. Yeah, uh, I mean I think no, if I they... reckon now's the time. Yeah, no time the, like the present. The problem is, if they tighten the screws, they might tighten it for interest only. They might tighten it for investors again, but they don't really want to tighten it for homeowners because no. they really need first home buyers is the demand mm. that keeps you know investors. You know, it's easy to target investors because you know no one gets upset if you target the investors. But if you target home buyers, you know that's oh, not everyone, great. Everyone hates so, investors. You know, they'll yeah. they, they'll probably do things, but the investors aren't there anyway. They're only just starting to consider coming back yeah, into the right. market. Exactly. Um, so there's no need to slow them down for a long time. Oh, um, I mean, I guess, so you're a constant investor and, you know, you've done a lot of it in the investment space around kind of picking companies and things like that. How much do you think behavioural finance plays into the psychology of investing and, you know, and help have people basically stuff it up? Because there's so many biases that we have that when we go and try to invest, we, you know, get affected by. Um, well, I don't really know what you mean by behavioural finance. I think that, you know, people are human beings. Mm. They're in the um, <clears throat> under the control of their emotions. Is that what you mean? Yeah, just I mean, I, you know, some pe- some people will think that you know I can I can maintain my emotions. I can go and buy a, a share, and I, I I'll know whether I want to sell it. I'll be able to be conscious, and I'll be able to be like rational, and I'll sell it at the right price. And I'll but if the market falls, what people do is naturally they sell, right? So you know they they fall for that. They fall for an overconfidence. They put all their shares. Like self-managed super funds, you know, they've got a massive exposure to Australian shares and home bias. Uh, and then that share portfolio is generally in the big banks and a couple of other companies. So they just invest in what they know. So that's another bias. So how do you think that these play out um, 
where a lot of investors, you know, don't know what they're doing, but they believe that they do, I guess. Uh, well, you know, the, the best thing is to is to try not to be uh, subject to your emotions, and mm. definitely. Uh, I mean, I think that uh, if you ask me what people should do, is uh, I think dollar cost averaging is a good way to go. Just mm-hmm. kind of putting mm-hmm. a small amount into the market, uh, into particularly a fixed cost uh, item mm-hmm. asset um, regularly, every month or every quarter or something like that, um, mm-hmm. and that kind of tends to overcome. Uh, the emotion of kind of buying at the top and selling at the bottom. That's mm-hmm. really how people... It's a disciplined approach. Well, yeah, I mean, look, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is important to be disciplined and not to buy at the top and sell at the bottom. That's mm-hmm. kind of how most people lose their money. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Alan, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Uh, look, the thing that I've, the thing that's really caught me out a couple of times now, or once especially, is is investing in companies that haven't made it through the valley of death yet. Mm. The valley of death is where a startup uh, has a great product or a great service, but they haven't yet got a good business and they're burning cash. And they need cash, and you know, you, you, you even if you've got a good buy. So I invested in a business that had a fantastic product, which was a um, lighting, a smart lighting that cut um, a warehouses and shopping centres energy bills by eighty percent mm-hmm. routinely. As soon as they install this product, their energy costs come down by eighty percent. Yeah, you know, absolute no brainer. Does seem like one. Uh, and I thought, right, that's fine. I put a fair bit of my hard-earned into it and uh, didn't make it through the valley of death, went broke, mm. went to zero. Um, and that's kind of, I suppose, the thing to watch. Mm. Um, co- companies that burn cash often do make it. I mean, zero is a, is a you know, eight or nine billion dollar business, yeah. but it's still burning cash. Mm. Uber mm. is worth, mm. I think, 150 billion mm. in, the, in the US. It's burning. It's mm. burning millions and millions mm. of dollars, yeah. still. So that's yeah. you know. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't invest in companies that burn cash, but um, you have to really know and believe that they're going to be able to make it to it's, break even. Yeah, it's like a good idea is not a business, right? But mm. even a product isn't a business, right? Like it's even if you've got an amazing product, you still need the the managerial sort of side of it. You need to be timing. You need um, yeah. funding, etc. And a lot of um, you know. I mean, a lot of venture capital funds, um, you know, destroy businesses because, you know, that they need to keep popping up the price and, you know, if it's not working for them, then they'll put their money elsewhere. And so you're right, like there's usually a, a telling moment, I guess, and um, it's all about getting the right timing. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. And so I've got to talk a bit about negative interest rate environment as well. Mm-hmm. No um, yeah, thank you so much for your time. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Appreciate it. We want to make you better elephant riders and this week's Elephant Rider Boot Camp is coming from Chris. So I think Alan spoke a lot about, um, well, I asked him a question around, you know, what can you do for a recession? And he said, you know, the most important thing is keeping your job. And I think, um, you know, for a lot of our listeners, you always have to be thinking, you know, about your employment and, you know, because if that does go for any reason, it's kind of the hardest time to get a job is when you haven't got a job as well. So, you know, that's your buffer. That's, you know, if you're going to go and invest and you're going to, you know, have debt, the most important thing is you can always service that debt because you never want to have to sell those assets. So 
you should always be building buffers. A lot of clients have come to me and they've either resigned and they're going to look for another job or they have been made redundant. Um, and we can't get bank finance, you know, and that's the thing. So if you are, um, you've still got a job and you've got able to get access to equity, you really build your buffers while you can as well. So you should always be looking to refinance, pull out a bit of cash, keep it there as a buffer um, because you can only get that money when you've got a job. So when you're talking about buffers, you're talking about sort of making sure you've got an offset account and there's plenty of access to cash there to pay down mortgages while you are out of work or you're talking about a line of credit or what are, what are you talking about, some of the options that people could have to give themselves that. It's effectively an insurance policy, isn't it? Yeah. So in the past, you could always refinance up to 80% on the value of your properties and release that money um, pretty much with not many questions, right? Mm. The bank would just give it to you. You'd put that money in an offset account and then it was up to you what you did with it, you know? Um, Banks are coming down a lot on cash out because, you know, they know that people do this and they they don't get paid on that money unless you spend it. So they don't really want you to have... $500,000 $500,000 sitting there available. That, well, you wouldn't be able to do it if you didn't have a job either. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. yeah. And so, so as you soon have as to you, do all this stuff while you're still employed. While you're still yeah. working. You know, and a client just recently resigned and said, um, and I was like, well, you've just resigned. You're going to start a business, but you should have come before you did that because you had a high salary um, and then you could have gone and got built yourself a buffer. Um, and then if you did resign, you've got access to the money there to protect you, but it's too late now because you haven't got a job. So you've really got to be thinking, you know, always about your employment, your buffers, Mm. Um, and just, be, you know, because something does happen, you know, the business could go under, you could get a restructure and, um, you know, that might be great, but it does change your lending situation. So effectively, it's sort of almost like financing yourself, isn't it? So if you've got equity in your property, which is why we always go on about capital growth, um, you've actually got equity that you could actually access that equity while you're still in employment, have it sitting there in an accessible form of some description mm. So that if anything happens, you're still able to basically fund those investments or your own home mm. until you get to the point where either your business starts making money or you get yourself another job. Yeah. So let's say you've got access, you pull out $200,000, right? Mm. And your monthly remortgage repayment is $5,000 a month. Mm. And you've got this $2,000 sitting there, $200,000 sitting there. Well, you've got three years of mortgage repayments just yeah, sitting there. Well, no, it's well, it's slightly increased. Cause yeah, yeah, potentially. Yeah. yeah, there'd be some higher repayments, but, mm. you know, maybe it's two years or two and a half yeah, years. But you're buying yourself a lot of time. A lot of time. Yeah. But if you didn't have that 200 grand there and then you have to pay $5,000 a month and yeah, you haven't, panic. well, I've got to get a job. I've got to get a job. Um, I've got to sell. Yeah, and I've mm. got to sell. Um, so, you know, that just building that buffer, just having it sitting there. I mean, you do need the discipline to not spend that money. So that is part of the problem. Mm. Um, you know, but if you ha- if you are disciplined with your money, there's you should always do it. Because when you want to do it is when you won't be able to get the money. Please join us for our next episode when we have a little bit of argy-bargy with Brendan Coates from the Grattan Institute. When I say a little bit of argy-bargy, we're talking about affordability, we're talking about tax reform, we're talking about some of the smart people that are trying to influence government policy around these areas. We even talk about my pet favourite, which is land tax. You better tune in and find out how the argument turned out. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. 
If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.